WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we will be speaking with John Pucci in just a few minutes. He is, of course, the former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Massachusetts. That's in Springfield, covers all of Western Massachusetts. And we are going to be talking about the indictment of Donald Trump. First, we have with us Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. We are going to be talking about a extraordinary I think extraordinary proposal for a billion dollars in tax cuts from the governor that is disturbing. Uh, but first, Max, I'd like to get, if you're willing to do this, I'd like to get your impressions or thoughts about the indictment of Donald Trump. You're a political person. You're a smart person. You've been very involved in politics, national and statewide for a long time. Your thoughts about the indictment. Well, I mean, I'm also, when I'm not doing this job at the Massachusetts Teachers Association, I am a historian and teach at UMass Amherst, and this is obviously historic, no matter where you land and where the, and where the court cases end up. I mean, this is the first time uh, a former president, been, president has been indicted. You know, my first impression is that, you know, this could be utterly chaotic. It could turn, you know, there is, it could sharpen the divisions in the country. And at the end of the day, it could um, show the majesty of the law because there will be this case. There may be others we know from Georgia and and elsewhere, um, various aspects of Trump's um, business and uh, political life. It could show when these are done, people could say, wow, the, the, the law worked as it should have. Maybe he will be convicted. Maybe he will not. And maybe uh, we will, at the end of the day, say, well, where, wherever, whatever our beliefs about him, we felt like the, the court did its, did its job or courts did their job. And um, we can have greater confidence in that because there's a lot of distrust, as we know, enormous, enormous distrust in our institutions, our public institutions. So I may be naive, but that is one hope I, I have that comes out of this case and any others that might get um, filed. Yeah, I, I got to actually endorse your self-deprecating comment, Max, which is that I think that those who find the verdict, whatever it is, to be consistent with what their previous beliefs were, will say, yes, the system worked. And those who are disappointed in the verdict will say, see, the system is corrupt and it doesn't work. I mean, I think it's going to reinforce. So, but anyway, I hope you're right. The majesty of the law will prevail by Max Page, a new historical perspective. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see, Max. Hey, listen, talk to us while we have you for a few minutes. I know you have to run to a meeting. Uh, the governor's proposal on tax cuts, what is going on in Massachusetts? Well, this is, uh, you know, for those who always talk about lefty, deep blue Massachusetts, um, as you know, we've spoken for years on this program, the, the, the Mass Teachers Association, my union, put in, uh, unending, I mean, an unbelievable amount of energy of our members, our staff, our our members' dues in order to win the fair share amendment, which is really a, a victory that took 107 years in coming to create a more progressive tax system, asking the very, very wealthiest to pay a little more for our public schools and colleges and transportation systems. And indeed, the governor's proposal, this is the good side, has significant funds with um, this year for dramatic increases in spending on public colleges as well as uh, transportation systems. 
but the you know what the the one hand giveth the other taketh and the governor's also proposed upwards of a billion dollars in tax cuts now some of those you may you know and i may even like i mean it's you know tax cuts tax credits for dependent care child care or care of elders or uh, disabled family members you know um but there are also nearly a half a billion dollars in tax cuts for the one percent changing the estate tax or lowering what's you know the short-term capital gains basically the taxes we apply for day traders people who are doing you know investment banker types who are buying and selling stocks that's exactly the opposite of what the taxpayers voted for when they passed the fair share amendment this past november 8th okay listen i understand why a tax credit for various kinds of care for the elderly and for children. Uh, that all makes sense. But I don't get tax cuts for day traders who are making short-term capital gains. Why? What's, what's the rationale for that? It, it is the same old mythology um, that keeps getting uh, new life, even in this, again, allegedly blue state. Oh, we need to remain competitive we are worried that millionaires will leave. We have debunked this myth over and over again. We have doubled the number of millionaires over the past decade at a time when people could have moved 20 miles to New Hampshire to move their businesses and their homes and have zero state income tax. That's what New Hampshire's rate is, zero. But they have not because they want to be in Massachusetts. This is where the great universities are, public and private. This is where college graduates are. This is where the innovation economy is. And we know that. Lego just decided after the fair share amendment passed to move its, move its enterprise from Connecticut to Massachusetts because they want to be around our education world. So it is um, just really ridiculous to think that people, that, that we should care that a couple millionaires may want to leave. What we need is affordable housing, great schools and colleges. We need to fix this transportation system. We do not need to give tax cuts to the 1%. This, there'll be hearings. This is not a done deal, I take it. Well, there, there, of course, it's, there was a big hearing um, at the State House this past week when the governor spoke at length, and then there were lots of back and forth on these proposals. The House of Representatives is moving towards um, putting its proposals forward, and we are working very hard to tell them that they that our, and our elected representatives should not be giving away these the what we won in the fair share amendment back to these millionaires and billionaires. And then, of course, it'll go to the Senate. So this is a process that will take several months, but we need to nip this in the bud. Okay. One last thing I'm asking about before I let you go: uh, the Cherish Act. There's yes. A lot so going one on. of the one of the main reasons we fought so hard for the, the fair share amendment is it would pro, it specifically names investments in public um, higher education in the amendment. And so we are working very hard to pass a blueprint for high quality debt free public higher education, which we call the Cherish Act. And one of the key highlights is that it would say to every resident. When you go off to a public college or university, we will guarantee you will not graduate with debt. If you're very wealthy, you can pay for it. You won't graduate with debt because you have the money. If you're very poor, we will not only help cover your tuition and fees, but also your um, living expenses. 
and to make it possible that you can go to college and know that you will not be burdened for decades with debt. And the odds of the Cherish Act in this form passing this legislative session, Max? Well, with money behind it and um, this, our state senator, Joe Comerford, as one of the, the leads on it and, and Representative Pat Duffy from Holyoke behind it, I feel much more hopeful than ever before. And I want to note that we're going to highlight this issue um, out at Mass MoCA on April 14th. There is an ongoing exhibit there about the sort of illustrating an artist, Kelly Ray Adams, has done this terrific piece that captures in, um, artistically the, the impact of student debt. And so at 4 p.m. on April 14th, there will be an event out at uh, Mass MoCA so that we're bringing this story to the Berkshires. We'll leave it there, Max Page, and we have to run to a meeting. Thank you so much. That's when we come back, we're going to be joined by John Pucci. We're going to be talking about Trump and the indictments right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Skateboarding, basketball, dancing. Ross Gay has plenty to talk about in his new book, Inciting Joy. Author of the best-selling Book of Delights, Ross Gay returns with Inciting Joy, a collection of essays on joy in its many forms. Pick up Inciting Joy, plus a new paperback edition of Book of Delights at Broadside Bookshop in downtown Northampton. Plus, order virtually any book on the Broadside website, then pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. Well, I'm not sure that Donald Trump's going to be breaking rocks in the hot sun, but he is in difficulty in the state of New York. We are joined by John Pucci. He is with us and has been with us regularly to discuss the little travails of Donald Trump. 
John Pucci is a partner at the law firm of Buckley Richardson. He has been the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Massachusetts and in charge of the U.S. Attorney's Office there and was a longtime U.S. Attorney prior to becoming head of the Western Massachusetts U.S. Attorney's Office and has been doing criminal law for decades. John Pucci, you have been examining the legal travails of Donald Trump for months. You've shared your insights with us, which we really appreciate. He has now been indicted in New York. We don't know exactly for what. We know it's a large number of counts, 22. Some reports say, some say 30. The indictments are sealed. Uh, there will be an arraignment apparently Tuesday afternoon. We'd, I would appreciate, we would appreciate your perspective at this point. John? Well, uh, the all I can say is game on. The case is now officially a public record. Uh, the details will be uh, unsealed on Tuesday. And uh, by all accounts, there's many, there, there, by all accounts, there's many counts in the indictment. There could be 22, there could be 30, depending on who you listen to. But um, it indicates that there's going to be a lot of a lot of charges, maybe two dozen or so. Uh, my guess is that they all relate to the um, hush money payments to uh, Stormy Daniels. Um, that is a single count for each check that was written to Michael Cohen to reimburse him for the payoff. But I don't know that. There's a theory that there may be some counts in there re relating to the the DA's prior investigation of. Uh, fraud by the Trump organization on his real estate holdings and submissions of final financial statements to the bank. But uh, nobody really knows. The process is the grand jury voted. Uh, we don't know what that vote was. That will be exposed on Tuesday. The indictment was sealed and under New York practice, it'll be unsealed on Tuesday when Trump appears in person uh, and is rained on those charges. Uh, there's a possibility he won't appear in, even in person, that he would be, it could be done remotely. Uh, but in any event, he has to, he has to appear some way, one way or another, he'll enter a not guilty plea. His lawyers will enter their appearance formally in the case. Um, and the process will, will jump forward and we'll know a lot more on Tuesday what the charges are and the scope and nature of them. But clearly, clearly the core of it is the are the payments to Stormy Daniels. John Pucci, you and I have disagreed somewhat uh, in the past about whether bringing this case in New York is a good idea in light of the very serious other potential charges in Georgia and federally through the Department of Justice regarding the January 6th uh, insurrection. We were talking just before we went on the air you were saying you think this is a righteous indictment and case to be brought at this point, which I think is something of a change for you, is it? Well, first off, let me say that it, it isn't as though all these prosecutors get in the room and they pick and choose what they're going to bring. Uh, Alvin Bragg, who's a DA in Manhattan, this case landed in his lap, whether he liked it or not. Um, and it didn't land, uh, you know, the DOJ had, a, had apparently previously declined the case, which is of, of some significance in this and worth noting, uh, but it has nothing to do with the case in Georgia. So you've got a, a collection of different prosecutors, the Department of Justice in Washington, looking at Mar-a-Lago, looking at 
the January 6th uh, insurrection. That's one piece that's separate um, from the prosecutors in Georgia who are looking at the, the criminal case there uh, for trying to fix the, the uh, election in Georgia to this case, which really is pre-election uh, conduct relating to uh, this payoff to Stormy Daniels. So the idea that they're somehow coordinated or you get to pick and choose is really not true. It's really not the way the system works. These are all freestanding prosecutorial places where decisions are gonna be made by grand juries in each and every instance. They're all grand jury cases. Uh, and so the first one by chance that pops out is this case involving Stormy Daniels. Well, I, to your question, do I, the longer I think about it and the more I learn about it, the stronger I think it is and the more righteous it is. It's a violation of law. Michael Cohen pled guilty and went to prison for doing exactly what he's going to testify Trump did. Uh, it happened on the eve of the election in an attempt to fix the, to, to influence the outcome of a presidential election in America. That's of consequence to me. Uh, and I think it should be of consequence to everyone. There's an aspect of this story that is quite extraordinary, having to do with the utter incompetence of Michael Cohen as a fixer and Donald Trump as a business person, where he's trying to pay off Stormy Daniels and he's asking his fixer, Michael Cohen and lawyer, to do it. And Cohen doesn't have the money and he has to get a mortgage and he gets some money and he tries to cover up where the money came from. And it goes on and on and on. It's an involved story. But it's not, this is something, the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Well, Michael Cohen was, by, by, was first and foremost a bully for Donald Trump. And only way down the line was he a lawyer. I think he was a crappy lawyer. Trump has a history of hiring bogus, poor lawyers uh, whose outstanding personal characteristic is that they're bullies like him. And Cohen was one of many lawyers uh, and, and his present lawyers that filled that bill. So the gang that shouldn't, couldn't shoot straight shot straight for a long time because of the power and aggression and money that they could bring to bear on their opponents. And in this case, um, it didn't carry the day. So if you were the defense lawyer in this case, what would you be looking at? Well, first and foremost, the, the, what's unknown and is central to any evaluation of the case is what testimony was taken in the grand jury. And there's transcripts of it. They get produced to the defense counsel early on in the prosecution. It's unclear whether they'll be made public or not. They will at some point be made public, but I don't know when. But there's critical testimony in the grand jury that is unknown. For instance, there's a guy named David Pecker, who was the publisher of the uh, National Enquirer, who previously orchestrated a payoff to a different woman to cover up an affair that Trump had. He, he can testify about a, a pattern with regards to Trump of paying off people uh, to cover up illicit activity. Uh, what, he, what his conversations were with Trump about paying off Stormy Daniels are unknown. He testified twice for five or six hours in the grand jury. If he and Trump had a conversation in which Trump approached him and said, will you take care of Stormy Daniels like we did the last woman that, that you buried? You got her story. We paid her off. You didn't publish it. Can you do, will you do that for me? David Pecker's testimony will be instrumental in the government's case against 
uh, Donald Trump. And he is not tainted, not tainted by all the things that Michael Cohen brings to the plate with his criminal record and his history of lying. Um, what I really think is this, the core and centerpiece of it is this. Will Michael Cohen's testimony be, be fully corroborated? Uh, will it be corroborated by Pecker's testimony? Will it be corroborated by records? Uh, there's apparently some telephone conversations were, were recorded between Cohen and Trump. Will it be corroborated by those telephone conversations? The government has, for time eternal, proven its cases with terrible, dirty witness people who have testified whose testimony is fully corroborated and therefore believable. Exhibit A, this is the biggest exhibit in my mind in the history of American jurisprudence. When Whitey Bulger was prosecuted in Boston and ultimately convicted, the linchpin of the government's case was a guy named Stephen Fleming. Stephen Fleming got on the stand and testified about all of Whitey's crimes. Stephen Fleming admitted on the stand he murdered, murdered 17 people. Think about that. They put him on the stand. They had so much corroboration for his testimony that the jury believed him, convicted Whitey, and Whitey went off to federal prison to uh, his ultimate conclusion. So, you know, anybody can be tell that even liars, extravagant liars, extravagant, incredibly ugly, de terrible people with horrible, who have done a series of horrible things can still tell the truth and convince a jury if they are fully corroborated. And so well, Jim, that, that's the for, for Bragg's case, uh, for Bragg's uh, case in this instance with regards to Michael Cohen. John Pucci, you said before, and I think we agreed, that in general, a case should not be brought and would not be brought against a uh, of this significance, unless it was a jail case, by which we in the criminal justice system mean a case that likely at the end of the conclusion of it with a guilty, the person would go to jail. These are still business crimes. Um, yes, they had an influence on the election, but they don't really sound like jail crimes. That is, a first offender would go to jail for it. So given that, does that influence your thinking at all about whether it's a good idea for this, these charges to be brought against Trump at this time? Uh, I think it's a consideration. I think whether it's a jail, quote, a jail case or not, uh, is a factor in evaluating whether to bring a prosecution. It's only as a, as a means of measuring the se severity and seriousness of the offense. But there are other factors that, that can offset it. And this is not a jail case, in my view. I do not believe Donald Trump's going to go to jail for this, at least for not for any significant time. But why bring the case? Are there other factors besides it not being a jail case that justify bringing it? I think the answer is yes, when in the context of the conduct, the purpose of it was to hide information which would have been instrumental uh, would have been very important for voters in deciding who to vote to be the president of the United States. When you're in that bailiwick, when you're influencing a presidential election, you're acting specifically to influence a presidential election, I think that's a factor that justifies bringing the case forward, whether it's a jail case or not. And doesn't it, this is Buzz, John Pucci, um, it, it depends on what these charges are, and we don't know. what Before we came on, 
you know, 30 count, I could break into your house, take your checkbook, and each check that I write on your checkbook is a separate count, right? There's the, the original theft and then each of those other thefts. On the other hand, this is the same jurisdiction. I mean, Letitia James got uh, a, a uh, conviction of Alan Weisselberg for financial crimes that Trump's organization had committed. He's in jail. Even at a ripe old age, he is in jail. And Michael Cohen went to jail, prosecuted federally for that which we suspect is behind these indictments. So it really does depend on what what those counts reflect. And of course, well, whether they're convicted. And Weisselberg is a perfect example. Weisselberg, you would say it's he's an old guy, no criminal record, uh, no, no, no violence involved. But it was a sig very significant tax fraud case in which you measured the violation in part by the amount of the tax loss. And in that case, the tax loss was north, north of a million dollars, which in itself made it a significant uh, case to bring. Next step, John, what are, what are we looking for? Tuesday, arraignment. Uh, um, he'll plead not guilty. His lawyer will enter the appearance. Uh, the charges will be unsealed and open to the public. That'll be very important to figure out the nature and scope of it. My guess, it's all uh, Michael Cohen payments uh, and the whole Michael Cohen structure of payments to Stormy Daniels, but it could be broader than that. Nobody knows except the grand jury, and we'll all find out Tuesday. We leave it there. John Pucci, thanks so much for your insight and for your time today. Really appreciate it. listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Dr. Portia Bonner has been officially hired as the new superintendent of Northampton Public Schools after being selected by the school committee on March 27th. Dr. Bonner will be succeeding interim superintendent Janelle Pearson Campbell, who has worked to ensure the continuity of the school district's operations during the past year. Dr. Bonner's first day in her new role will be July 1st. A longtime Holyoke police captain is now on administrative leave following a harassment prevention order against him. Western Mass News obtained court documents that detail how a younger female police officer accused Captain Manuel Reyes of sexually harassing her, making unwanted advances for years. The documents also reveal that two other co-workers of the officer reported inappropriate comments and behavior. Mayor Josh Garcia says this is a personnel matter that will receive rigorous, impartial scrutiny that respects the right of all concerned. The Amherst Town Council is looking at ways to reduce the cost to taxpayers for a new elementary school. The council is formally asking the Finance Committee to consider using $10 million from reserves toward the project to help reduce the $97.5 million Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion. The council had previously requested $5 million. The council could decide at its next meeting next week whether to use reserves. The school project will be subject to a vote on May 2nd.
Mostly cloudy today, some rain and snow showers developing early this afternoon. Those will transition to mainly rain, a high of 46 to 50. Showers tapering off to drizzle tonight, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Rainy tomorrow morning, then a break from the rain, even some sunshine tomorrow afternoon, a high in the low 60s. Watch out for a few thunderstorms, though, Saturday evening, mostly sunny Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El medicamento para revertir la sobredosis, Narcan, pronto podría estar disponible para comprarse sin receta, anunció el miércoles la Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos. La aprobación de la FDA del aerosol nasal Narcan, el nombre comercial del medicamento Naloxona, significa que el medicamento podría estar disponible más ampliamente en los Estados Unidos a medida que el país continúa lidiando con una epidemia de opiáceos. Narcan de venta libre salvará vidas, dicen los expertos, pero el costo afectará el acceso. Emergent Biosolutions, la compañía farmacéutica que produce Narcan, dijo el miércoles que esperaba que el aerosol nasal estuviera disponible en los estantes de las tiendas y en los minoristas en línea a finales del verano. No dijo de inmediato cuánto costaría. La administración aprobó por primera vez el aerosol nasal Narcan en 2015 como medicamento recetado. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden ofreció el miércoles una perspectiva optimista sobre la salud de la democracia en todo el mundo, declarando que los líderes están cambiando el rumbo para detener un retroceso de las instituciones democráticas que ha durado años. Al abrir su segunda cumbre sobre la democracia, Biden buscó destacar los avances esperanzadores del año pasado a pesar de la guerra de Rusia en la vecina Ucrania y las tensiones de Estados Unidos con China por su influencia militar y económica en el Indo-Pacífico y más allá. El presidente citó señales de progreso en todo el mundo. En casa, Biden señaló su impulso estancado para la protección del voto en el Congreso como evidencia del compromiso de su administración de apoyar la democracia. Las cumbres que Biden prometió como candidato en 2020 se han convertido en una pieza importante del esfuerzo de su administración para tratar de construir alianzas más profundas y empujar a las naciones de tendencia autocrática hacia cambios al menos modestos. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. For the past few weeks, I have wanted to have on the show Courtney Waring, who is the Director of Education at the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art, because I saw a piece, I think it was in the Gazette, and may have been in the Republican or elsewhere, uh, about uh, the Carl taking a step to make its exhibits, to make the museum more accessible to persons who don't have the same visual acuity as many of us. And there, it was a story about how the Carl had acquired glasses that allowed people who suffer from color blindness to see colors, which for the Carl, I think is a huge step. And to be able to appreciate this art or any art is a huge step. Courtney Waring, Director of Education at the Eric Carl Museum, tell us about what this technology is, what these glasses are, how they came to be. I really want to hear the story. Talk to us. Sure, thank you for having me. Yeah, um, a few months ago, we were um, looking to um, 
work with a company called Enchroma, and they have this uh, patented lens technology that has special optical filters. So those um, of our visitors with color vision deficiencies, they can wear these glasses, especially if they have common forms of red-green color blindness. Um, it will help them see a more expanded range of colors. And as you mentioned, for, for us at the Carl, if you're thinking about Eric Carl's you know, incredibly bright, vibrant, bold tissue papers that he painted, um, he built so much visual texture on those papers. So for us to be able to provide these glasses for guests with color blindness, they can see the illustrations so much more vibrantly and distinctly um, when they're visiting our museum. I may be asking an unfair question about the technology, but I would be interested to know how does color appear when a person doesn't see color? How, how does that happen? I just have to interrupt. This is Buzz, and I am just such a person that has a red-green color blindness deficiency. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I would love to hear your answer. Um, I'm Exhibit A well, and very interested. When, when, when we started working with Enchroma, they, they asked us for some images from our collection. So we gave them some, some works by Eric. And they created these um, uh, slides where we can see those with color vision deficiencies, how they would see our, our collages by Eric. And it was, it was incredible. It was eye-opening. You know, think about an iconic work like The Very Hungry Caterpillar um, with those bright, vibrant reds and greens. For um, some with colorblindness, and of course, you know, there are several forms of colorblindness, so anyone who tries the glasses might have different um, experiences. Um, but what we saw was very, you know, very tones of sepia um, across, the, across the illustration. Um, and then all of that visual texture that Eric creates in his tissue papers, you, you just didn't see as much. You just, it wasn't as clear and, and delineated. Um, when we had some guests come in and try the glasses for us, uh, that was one of the first things that they noted, that they didn't realize there was so much detail in the tissue papers that Eric made for his collages. So, I, I, you used, let me see if I understand, you used the Eric Carl uh, uh, creations as the prototype for developing or the company did and chroma used them as the prototype for developing the glasses that then would be effective in looking at other artwork as well they had the glasses created already um, they have a, a lot of different glasses available on their website the company is called Enchroma. Um, anyone with uh, color blindness can go to that website and do a, a test so they have a better idea of what type of color blindness one has and make a suggestion on what type of, of glasses to wear. For us, um, they just we, we gave them um, uh, an image of one of Eric Carl's works so they can do a conversion image to show us, you know, we, we look at it with, without color vision deficiency. We can see those vibrant colors. They converted it to show us what it looks like for someone with color vision deficiencies and how drastically different it looks. Um, so now that we have these glasses and we have eight different pairs, um, some are 
for indoor use, some are for outdoor use. You know, we have um, Bobby's Meadow named after Eric Carle's wife, Barbara. Uh, so our guests, whether they're inside or outside, can can look at all the bright, vibrant colors and textures surrounding them. Uh, we also have fit-over glasses. So if you already have, um, if you're already <laughs> or wearing glasses like I do, you can wear those glasses over your prescription glasses as well. So these glasses are generally available for persons who have this, uh, uh, this, I'm not sure I want to call, call it, a, is it a deficiency? Is it, is that how you refer to it? We, we call it a deficiency. Those of us who a suffer deficiency. from it. A color vision, yes, deficiency. Um, it is, it's available for uh, individuals. They can go on in Chroma's website and, and look at the different options and take the test. And, and Chroma also has something called a color accessibility program. And that's something for schools, museums, libraries. It just provides, um, and Chroma provides more support for institutions to have those colorblind, color vision deficiency glasses available at their organizations. We are the first museum in Massachusetts to offer uh, these glasses to our guests, but there are certainly libraries and uh, universities throughout Massachusetts that offer them as well. That's interesting. Was there some event? Is there a story about what motivated the Carl to take the step of acquiring these glasses at this time? I think for us, you know, like many, like many museums in the Valley, we're all thinking about accessibility and inclusion in our spaces. Um, Carl was a part of a cohort before the pandemic with um, Mass Cultural Council in thinking about universal design across the museum. And so we continue as a team to have discussions. And right before the pandemic, I think it was in 2019, I had seen um, an article about a museum in Arkansas. I think it was the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas, that had a donor gift them several pairs, I think it was maybe a quite large pair, um, group of glasses actually, for guests to use throughout the museum. And it just really fascinated me that, um, that there, there would be glasses available for guests to come and use around the space. Um, so when we reached out to Enchroma, it was maybe back in December, it happened very quickly. We met with them. We had you know, wonderful information that they provided to us. Uh, we were able to invite some, some guests here who have color vision deficiencies to experience the glasses in our space. And uh, you know, effective March 1st, we started to offer them. Um, it's a simple checkout process. You know, people will come to our front desk and ask to borrow them um, for their, their visit. And uh, I was just looking at the list the other day, um, and it's just wonderful to see a mix of adults and children borrowing them. They usually come back to the desk, and um, whether it's you know, thanking us or just sharing with us what they've experienced by trying the glasses on. Wow. Wow, what a wonderful thing to do. Are the glasses expensive? Um, there, I think there's a range, um, but um, with the color accessibility program, we were able to receive a discount. I think some pair of glasses might be in like the 150 to $200 range. Well, that's, it's not inexpensive, but it's not really prohibitive. It sounds like an amazing thing. Uh, I take it, the re well, I don't want to take it, have you heard from the, the guests at the Carl who have used them, what their experience has been, what it has meant to them? 
Yeah, we when we invited some guests to um, you know test them out in our space, one one was uh, local, and and uh, he was talking about how you know his color vision deficiency impedes his his professional work. You know, if you can imagine. Um, you know, looking at PowerPoints that have colored graphs and charts that there, it might be difficult to differentiate um, the information that's on there. And, um, you know, when they, when they tried the glasses on, there was just um, um, a lot of surprise um, and, and unexpected um, views of the work. Um, looking at Eric's work and seeing all those bright colors, seeing all those details in the tissue paper, um, it was just really interesting to listen to them talk about all their different levels of color vision deficiency and how sometimes they would see similar things with the glasses, how it differed. Um, it was just um, really wonderful to see the, the variety of experiences in that space. This is Buzz, uh, and I'm definitely going to the Eric, Eric Carl, maybe this afternoon. Oh, good. Good. Courtney Waring, Director of Education at the Eric Carle Museum. Thank you so much for your work, and thank you for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for making life better for so many people. Thank you, Bill and Buzz. And Buzz, we hope to see you soon. You will. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Master trumpeter Sean Jones, turning heads in the jazz world for two decades. Sean Jones is bringing his magic and his band to UMass. The Sean Jones Quartet, Saturday, April 1st, in the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall at the UMass Fine Arts Center. Sean Jones is the former lead trumpeter for Wynton Marsalis' Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. Perhaps most notably, Sean Jones was the trumpeter selected for the 2011 Tribute to Miles Tour. He's in town all week for the annual UMass Amherst High School Jazz Festival, and Jones and his quartet will cap the week with a Saturday night in the concert hall. Get tickets on the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Master trumpeter Sean Jones and his quartet, Saturday, April 1st at UMass. I'm going down to the corner store. It sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom and pop shop, supporting the other mom and pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling, Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year. 
Celebrate the CWC. April 4th, the Center for Women and Community celebrates 50 years providing leadership and advocacy to Hampshire County. Join the Center for a day-long drop-in event with interactive exhibits, guest speakers, awards honoring important people in the Center's history, live performances, and a silent auction with fantastic items to bid on. Drop into the Old Chapel at UMass anytime from 10 to 6 on April 4th to join the fun. For more info and to preview the auction, visit umass.edu slash CWC. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about voting it. as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. And this is Heartbeat with Donabelle Cassis. We are thrilled that she is with us every week for Heartbeat. Donabelle has with her and us today a very special guest. The pleasure of the introduction and the microphone. They're all yours, Donabelle. Thank you so much. Good morning. There will be a new art mural that will grace downtown Holyoke and you can be part of the making. A community painting day will take place tomorrow, April 1st at 2 p.m. And joining us today is Kayla Rodriguez, executive director of Nueva Esperanza um, to tell us all about it. Welcome, Kayla. Thank you, thank you, I appreciate it. What an exciting project for the Holyoke community. And could you please tell us um, about the Artist Collective, because I know they just arrived uh, on March 28th. Um, tell us a little bit about Colectivo Moribibi. Absolutely. So the girls arrived on Tuesday, um, one of the artists and two of her assistants. And uh, today, the, another, uh, the second artist arrives. And by the end of the last week that they're here, which is April 15th, another assistant will be um, arriving. So I do know that the person, the artist who arrives today um, had to arrive today because she's finishing her degree. So exciting. She finished. Yes. Um, they have been working out of the, our shop. We have a building which is pretty empty. We use for storage. We cleared up for them and they mm -hmm. love it. It's, it's big, it's spacious, and they have all their supplies there. So it's been great. Um, they um, have their own apartment. Mm -hmm. So they are, um, we have Alex Wakala, um, mm -hmm. who owns Williston Real Estate Investment, who donated a three bedroom apartment here on Main Street. So, and ran a center. Mm -hmm. donated um he furnished it so definitely we've had a lot of community support um mm -hmm. we also have had the equipment go ahead sorry oh no 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 this is this is exciting so exciting. If, if people aren't familiar with colectivo moribibi they are an all-american puerto rican artist activist collective and they work with youth to bring together um a creative endeavor which is a public art mural that will represent um the local cultural district and this mural will be in downtown holyoke um tell us where but then this artist sort of um you know collective collaboration painting days at a different place 
So yeah, so the building will be right next to Nueva Esperanza's prop, um, property. It's another one called, it's 4117 Main Street. It used to call the ARPA building. It's a very historic building. Um, that building, it's owned by Chris Elliott, who's now it's Elliott Fire Sprinkling System. And he has um, graciously primed it for us and gave us permission to put the, this mural. He's the one that said, the bigger, the better, take the whole wall. And we were so excited. So um, the girls um, collaborated with 10 of our local youth to mm -hmm. get the ideas together. So based on this um, sub grant that was uh, given by the Mellon Foundation, UMass Amherst, um, the idea, the theme behind it is race and visual culture in the Americas, 20th to 21st century. So mm. what these girls in their workshops, they did a two day workshop and they wanted feedback from the kids. What do you think it's what's visual race? Um, what, what's the cultural here in Holyoke? So they gathered a lot of information. They got the kids thinking and they designed this beautiful mural and presented it to them and got feedback from the kids and they adjusted a couple things. And it's, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, tomorrow, the community is able to help paint this mural with the collective, and it's on this poly tab material. Like, do you have to be an artist to participate? Or Absolutely how, not. how does the community get involved? It's open to anybody, uh, parents, uh, professionals, come with your kids. Uh, we will have many uh, volunteers to help you. Uh, it's like a, a color by number. So that's what we'll have, and you'll have your little containers with your paint, and you'll have your section. Um, the artists will be going around, helping people, talking, mingling. Um, so definitely, it's a really big piece, so it's enough for a lot of people to join. I do expect a lot of the community members to join, um, and it will be between uh, Nueva Esperanza and our other building, so it's a little lot that we have fenced in, so I'm excited. Well, you know, I'm glad that it is a big project, and you are hoping for a you know, a big turnout because I think the weather is supposed to be great. Is it indoors or outdoors? Actually, it's it, it's outdoor. Mm -hmm. But if if it does, in case it rains, we will have the tents and everything. So, okay. How big is the whole mural? The whole mural, I believe they said it was thirty, thirty high and twenty wide. Thirty high. That's that's big, and I'm, yes. I'm happy that the the building owner said the bigger the better because yes. I've seen the photos and I know they don't want to release the photo of the design until it's actually revealed. Oh, yes, um, which I believe it says April fifteenth to the twenty first or something. That's where they'll start the installation. Yes, start the installation, and so yes. basically how this works is people just show up at this site, which um, is it at 401 Main Street? Is that Correct. where the uh, location is yeah. tomorrow, um, starting at 2 p.m.? And um, so members of the Artist Collective, Colectivo Morebibi, will be there to help people who come work on the mural. I think that's absolutely exciting. And is there anything else people need to know before they get yes. there? Yes. If you can't make it on Saturday, we do have a second paint day which will be April Tuesday, April 4th at five o'clock. So if you missed it tomorrow, there's a second chance and I will be putting it on the media and press release. So you'll get more information on that. You'll get definitely many opportunities. Bill, did Absolutely. you want to say something? I want to go back. I just want to make sure I understand the uh, basis for the theme and how that came about and what it is that's going to be painted. Could you just say a few more words about that, please? So absolutely. So I'm um, not sure. Um, so 
this project started uh, with a former director. Um, I jumped in with um, Jimena and Karen Skarinski. She's there from a professor's in UMass from the uh, History of Art and Architecture Department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And so they got uh, granted 225,000 um, from the Mellon Foundation to do um, Mellon Sawyer faculty seminars. And um, this whole seminars theme is race and visual culture in the Americas 20th and 21st century. And part of that grant, it was to subgrant Nueva Esperanza for public art commissions uh, for the Puerto Rican dis dysphoria you know, community in Holyoke. Did I answer your question? <laughs> it did, except to get to the part, and then somebody had to draw it. Who actually drew it? We have about thirty seconds left, but who actually Sorry. drew it? The two, the two ladies, the artists. So it's uh, Raisa, Raisa Rodriguez, and Sha uh, Sharon Garcia. So Kayla um, is from the Kayla Rodriguez, who's joining us today uh, from Nueva Esperanza, who's collaborating with this whole project and um, uh, La Cultura Consulting, Chloe Soto, who was supposed to join us today. Thank you so much for bringing this project to us. And I hope you get a big turnout because this mural is going to be gorgeous. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And Bill, we have with us today a very interesting group of gentlemen to talk about a book that um, is just coming out. The name of the book is Labor, Power, and Strategy organizing around the choke points. I actually am looking forward to talking about what that means, choke points. Um, but uh, it is John Womack, who is a professor emeritus in Latin American history and economics at Harvard University. Peter Alney, who's retired director of organizing for the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. And Rand Wilson, the organizer with Teamsters for a Democratic Union, thank you all for being with us this morning. I want to start with you, John Womack. Uh, strikes and threats of strikes are very much in the news these days for good reason. Uh, Amazon, Starbucks, public employees, and others. Can you tell us what is the book targeting? What is the objective? What is the point the book tries to make, John Womack? 
Uh, well, thank you, uh, Buzz and Bill for um, and Rand and Peter uh, for uh, the you know this uh, attention to the book. Uh, it's uh, about uh, the point of it is that at any kind of work uh, where there is a division of labor, a technical division of labor, that is different people doing different things, all making something, um, all together making something, that there are, uh, there, there are in those connections between workers um, certain jobs that uh, on which depend all many other jobs, and those jobs uh, are the choke points. Um, they uh, are where if those workers stop uh, doing what they're uh, supposed to do, uh, then other people can't do what they're supposed to do. Um, uh, Gene Bruskin uh, had a very good example uh, at Smithfield, uh, where they were in, uh, some years ago. Um, it's the biggest meat uh, packing plant and slaughterhouse uh, in the world, uh, where uh, the, they bring in 32,000 uh, pigs a day. Uh, and when, uh, after years of complaints by uh, the workers in the, uh, particularly in the so-called livestock department, which uh, sort of directed uh, the uh, pigs as they let them out of the trucks, directed them uh, into sort of passageways where they could go on down to the, uh, the slaughtering process. Um, the, uh, the workers there finally one day had had enough and they sat down. Uh, there were uh, not that many of them. Um, I forget, uh, maybe 90 as I remember, something like that. But that, but you couldn't put the pigs back in the trucks. Uh, the pigs were coming on. And so um, that stopped everything else further down the line. And, um, uh, and then with a lot of uh, support outside the, uh, uh, the factory, uh, uh, the, the, the factory folded uh, right quick and did, uh, as, uh, you know, responded to the, uh, to the workers' demands. Um, but uh, so uh, this is most, uh, I would say, choke points are they're most uh, obvious and easiest to see in logistics, in transportation, the supply chain. Uh, Peter uh, has uh, talked uh, about that, about the crane operators and the people on the docks. Uh, but um, uh, it's uh, also on railroads, uh, in railroad yards. Um, and, um, so, so let me, let me, John Womack, let me turn to Peter Olney. This, this book is a collection of, I think by 10 different authors. Um, you actually were an interviewer in this. We're talking about in terms of these choke points, that is this inner reliance, uh, among workers in, in industries that rely upon each other. Um, so can you tell us what it is that you want us to learn in reading labor power and strategy yeah thanks for the show this is a great uh, venue it's great to be with john and rand um 
this book uh, came somewhat out of my own experience as organizing director at the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, where I watched the exercise of this kind of strategic power uh, in the economy and in this particular sector of logistics. And I read some work that John Womack had done. Uh, and John, by the way, is probably the English-speaking world's leading historian of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, I read some work that he had done on this topic, and I decided this is this is golden. We got to interview this guy. So I sat down at the Foundry Restaurant in Davis Square in Somerville, where Rand Wilson resides, and I interviewed John Womack. and And then we took the interviews and transcribed them and edited them, and then we asked ten of Labor's uh, best organizers and educators to respond to John Womack. So this is really a dialogical work where people like Gene Bruskin or Rand Wilson or Jane McAlevey or Bill Fletcher respond to John's thesis. And sometimes they disagree and sometimes uh, they agree. Somebody told me I should have gotten 12 to respond and then it would have been biblical. But uh, <laughs> in case- There are two lost so tribes. In the Womackian Creed, they're actually arguing and discussing with John Womack. It's 152 pages long. It is a pocketbook. You can take it to work and discuss it with your fellow workers. And by the way, it has a Northampton connection. John Stuart Bowman, my uncle, uh, provided key editing assistance from Northampton, Massachusetts. So there we go. Buy it on PM Press. John has been on the show many times and is one of our favorite authors. Thank you for mentioning him. So in terms of these choke points, uh, Peter Olney, what, what is the takeaway? We don't, if we're going to strike, we have to talk to these other uh, workers who are in the unions representing them, perhaps, that are involved in the production of an item. Is, is, is that the takeaway? Well, one of the takeaways is, has been uh, to analyze the production system. John's talking about linkages between workers and identifying certain workers who play a key role in that process in this seam of production. So, for instance, crane operators on the docks who lift containers from ships and lift containers back onto ships, these are really strategic workers. If it's a very skilled job. It takes years of experience. If they don't work, the whole international logistics system uh, stops. And, and that paralyzes the economy in some places within a week. Uh, so these are strategic workers. And then there are strategic sectors. Of course, dock workers are a strategic sector and can wield tremendous power. Got it. Rand Wilson, you um, wrote... In this book, you wrote, you authored, Who Will Lead the Campaign? Could you talk to us about what that's involving? Sure. I mean, when we're organizing to uh, either gain collective bargaining rights or perhaps preparing for uh, some sort of collective action to secure uh, better wages and working conditions, um, as part of the collective bargaining process. Um, whenever workers are organizing, what I wrote is that, that there is a, um, uh, the knowledge about these strategic sectors and these strategic workers 
rest with the employees and that that when we're when we're doing when we're working as as, uh, as organizers with a group those workers themselves are usually pretty savvy about uh, who in the production process or in the service delivery or in uh, the hospital whatever sector you're in there are workers that really understand where those weak choke choke points are where these strategic places are and that's i just wanted to add that to uh to the whole volume that, that, that there's tremendous knowledge within the working class itself about uh uh these strategic sectors and these strategic workers and i've had some experience with that by the way when uh as an organizer um you know sometimes you need to reach out and not just find you know the the angriest or the most uh, vocal workers but find those workers that that have that power and because uh, other workers will respect uh, the whole union process more if they see uh, the workers that have that kind of strategic power coming forward to lead the union so it's a it's a smart organizing strategy let me ask you this rand wilson we've heard a lot about supply chain issues in the world economy. Are you talking about, when you talk about choke points, and I guess we should also ask uh, Peter only this, are we talking about labor being able to effectively affect the world economy in order to enhance the position and the uh, terms and conditions and employment and wages for workers? Is that fundamentally what we're talking about here, or is it something different? Hey. You've nailed it. Labor creates all wealth. And every once in a while, the owning class needs to be reminded of the fact that we are the ones that do the work. We are the ones that create the profits. And, uh, and the only way that you can really get them to pay attention and learn that lesson is by withdrawing your labor power. And you want to do it in a smart, strategic fashion. And that's what this book is about. Yeah, look at uh, yeah, look at what's going on in France. Macron's trying to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64, uh, and he's ramming it through Parliament, but he's facing massive resistance and strategic strikes in key sectors like uh, airlines, railroads, and the metro in Paris. And in fact, the garbage men aren't picking up the trash, so Paris stinks right now because strategic workers are exercising that kind of power on a macro level. Well, yeah, and we're also seeing a lot of, uh, frankly, in the public sector, uh, a new kind of, uh, I think, insistence on fair wages and terms and conditions of employment. And we've had teacher strikes in Massachusetts, which of course they're illegal, but in fact they have happening, they are happening, and they're being very effective. And that's a change. Your thoughts about that? Let's ask Peter first, and then we'll go to Rand and John. Well, yeah, I think that's really significant. And uh, thanks to the leadership of Northampton resident Barbara Madaloni the, and the transformation of the Mass Teachers Association, you're seeing that kind of strike activity in defiance of the law. It's very exciting to watch here from California. Rand? Yeah, just uh, let, let's hear from. Uh, Brother Womack, uh, uh, a little about what his thoughts are. Professor uh, Womack, your thought. 
Oh, well, uh, about the, the teachers. Uh, yes, uh, they're public employees. It's illegal in Massachusetts for them to strike, but um, they're, uh, it's not only they're the bus drivers. Uh, you can't, uh, in Boston, that's uh, a huge problem. Then uh, uh, the school staff, uh, those people are all essential uh, and strategic. Uh, the in a hospital, the hospital staff or the janitors uh, in the hotel or or uh, or hospital uh, health industries, and as Peter mentioned, uh, garbage collection. So it's not only skilled people; it's uh, often people uh, on whom others depend, like janitors. Um, if they don't uh, service a hotel uh, within two or three days, it's uninhabitable. Um, so uh, it's so it's not only in transportation uh, and in manufacturing, uh, but it's also in services. There are certain kinds of positions uh, that have to uh, that, that have to be uh, enforced or enacted. Uh, for other uh, people to do their their work, um, and uh, of course uh, there are um, other uh, factors that come into this. Uh, the public support uh, for uh, uh, for the workers uh, on strike or who shut things down, just as Rand says, um, and. Um, uh, that without that public support, uh, it's very, very hard to, uh, that's one of the uh, problems and, and, uh, to, that, uh, any strike, uh, faces. Um, so there are other kinds of power that, uh, that are, it's important to mention, um, and, uh, institutional, that is political power. Uh, indeed, political what, power is always sitting there in the background or the foreground. We're going to take a break. We're talking about a new book, Labor, Power, and Strategy, Organizing Around the Choke Points. Our guests are John Womack, Peter Alney, Rand Wilson. We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1401-1400-1240. WHMP. Business West announces the 2023 Difference Makers. This year's honorees include Gary Rome, president of Gary Rome Auto Group, Henry Thomas of the Urban League of Springfield, and the Springfield Ballers. Read their inspiring stories at businesswest.com. Join Business West on April 27th at the Log Cabin and celebrate the Difference Makers. Network with hundreds of business and civic leaders. The 2023 Difference Makers, sponsored by Burkhart Pizzinelli PC, the Royal Law Firm, Tommy Car Auto Group, and Westfield Bank. Celebrate the Business West Difference Makers, April 27th at the Log Cabin. 
When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well with Without unnecessary risk, Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are speaking to um, authors and interviewers in the new book, Labor, Power, and Strategy, Organizing Around the Choke, books, uh, choke Points. Excuse me, um, Dan, you had a question you wanted to ask um, our guests who are John Womack, Peter Olney, and Rand Wilson. Yeah, and hearing this conversation about choke points in labor and how uh, each uh, labor union has specific uh, important roles and relationships made me think that a real struggle for the labor union of the future is getting labor unions to work together and to create a solidarity between different labor unions. I wanted Peter maybe to address that. Yeah, that's a crucial point. I'm glad you're raising that. Uh, one of the bright signs in, in this question of solidarity is the recent uh, strike in Los Angeles of classified employees in the school district, janitors, food service, the workers at John Womack just mentioned. They went on a three-day strike, and in an unprecedented act of solidarity, the teachers also struck. And so these workers won their contract because of the solidarity of teachers. And that was unprecedented. And the parental support for all of this was incredible. So you make a great point. We need those kind of solidarity linkages to be made in these battles. So, Rand, sometimes it's difficult within a bargaining unit to get agreement. How do you get agreement across bargaining units? Well, right now, 340,000 uh, Teamsters who work for United Parcel Service are engaged in that process. Um, you know, uh, like any workforce, that, that group is fragmented between uh, the inside warehouse workers, most of whom are part-time, uh, the men in brown, men and women in brown, who, who drive the, the delivery vans, and then the over-the-road over truckers or feeder drivers that work between the cities and haul uh, UPS packages and freight from uh, metropolitan area to metropolitan area. And um, so you have a, a, a very fragmented workforce and the way that you unite them is through uh, uh, getting people to identify, uh, to understand that the issues that one group is facing uh, have an impact on them as well. So when we talk about uh, uh, UPS creating part-time, uh, too many part-time jobs, uh, when they could be creating full-time jobs, we talk about that in terms of uh, it's undermining the, they're taking full-time jobs from 
uh, away from uh, uh, highly paid delivery drivers, fragmenting those jobs into two part-time jobs and undermining the strength and solidarity of those workers. So a little bit of an elaborate answer, but the, the, you've got to build that solidarity through months long contract campaign where people understand that the issues in other groups are their issues as well. John Womack, labor issues are not a new thing. Corporations have been exploiting workers for a very long time. Employers have been doing the same. Is there anything different about the modern contemporary uh, labor movement, especially with regard to organizing around the choke points, than it was decades ago? Uh, I, I don't think anything is basically new. This is part of uh, the, modern, uh, the modern economy. It's all uh, linked together. Um, and uh, that's been increasingly uh, the case for the last 150 years. So that uh, what's new now is, uh, a, well, it's not so, the technology is not new because computers and so on uh, come from, I don't know, 60 years ago. But the application of computers to new, uh, increasingly new uh, uh, parts of the economy, that is new. Uh, but uh, the, the the question of the connection of these computers uh, to the work that other people do is still there. Uh, their computers depend on uh, all kinds of people servicing them. Um, and uh, without them, uh, you can't, it looks wonderful when the computers are working, but what's the maintenance of a computer? Um, that uh, is a, a crucial uh, service, uh, and without it, uh, the, the plant, uh, the warehouse, or whatever uh, the computers serve will soon stop. So I don't think the, the logic of what um, I, I'm, I'm trying, what we're trying to argue uh, has changed. Um, the places uh, change and they will continue to change. It's constantly changing. Uh, but uh, you can, as Rand uh, said, you ask people who work with these things, what counts, what other people have to depend on uh, that's uh, the choke point, the bottleneck uh, that it's important to control. And John, you your book is laying out a plan to identify these choke points and to take advantage of supply chain issues right now in order to build labor power and and solidarity. Is your book targeting labor leaders? Is that who the intended audience is? Or do you expect workers to... Uh, read this and understand. Well, I, I think what we uh, hopefully uh, 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 targeted it uh, is to the younger generation and uh, people in their uh, 30s and 40s uh, uh, for them to use indefinitely. Um, last word, Peter Olney. Why should people buy this book? Buy the book. <clears throat> Get into the debate. You know, this book is creating all kinds of wonderful discussions all across the country among organizers. Uh, and that's the purpose of the book. And John's absolutely right. It's meant for the younger generation. And if you go up on the PM Press website, you can order the book. And uh, if you insert a code, coupon code, LABOR, all caps, 20, you get a 30% discount. So, uh, PM <laughs> is this, Press. Is this book available at your local independent bookstore? 
Uh, it should be. Uh, and if you go into your bookstore, I, I was in the Northampton bookstore and I asked them uh, whether they were planning to carry it. So maybe if you go in there too and push them, they will. Okay. We've been talking with John Womack, with Peter Olney, with Rand Wilson. They are in, responsible for the book, Labor, Power, and Strategy, Organizing Around the Choke Points. Right on, gentlemen. Great to be with you. Great show. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Seems like it's illegal to fight for the union anymore. And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Dr. Portia Bonner has been officially hired as the new superintendent of Northampton Public Schools after being selected by the school committee on March 27th. Dr. Bonner will be succeeding interim superintendent Janelle Pearson Campbell, who has worked to ensure the continuity of the school district's operations during the past year. Dr. Bonner's first day in her new role will be July 1st. A longtime Holyoke police captain is now on administrative leave following a harassment prevention order against him. Western Mass News obtained court documents that detail how a younger female police officer accused Captain Manuel Reyes of sexually harassing her, making unwanted advances for years. The documents also revealed that two other co-workers of the officer reported inappropriate comments and behavior. Mayor Josh Garcia says this is a personnel matter that will receive rigorous, impartial scrutiny that respects the right of all concerned. The Amherst Town Council is looking at ways to reduce the cost to taxpayers for a new elementary school. The council is formally asking the Finance Committee to consider using $10 million from reserves toward the project to help reduce the $97.5 million Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion. The council had previously requested $5 million. The council could decide at its next meeting next week whether to use reserves. The school project will be subject to a vote on May 2nd. Mostly cloudy today, some rain and snow showers developing early this afternoon. Those will transition to mainly rain, a high of 46 to 50. Showers tapering off to drizzle tonight, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Rainy tomorrow morning, then a break from the rain, even some sunshine tomorrow afternoon, a high in the low 60s. Watch out for a few thunderstorms, though, Saturday evening, mostly sunny Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. Co-op. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. If recent experience is any indication, air travelers had better be prepared for more than a few headaches when they fly. 
The Transportation Department reports passenger complaints are now four times higher than they were in 2019 before the start of the pandemic. Amazon is introducing a new frequently returned item tag that will alert shoppers that buyers are often unhappy with that particular purchase. Since Amazon started no-cost returns, its costs have risen. The company may think it's in its best interest not to sell an item if it's going to be returned. Is $100,000 a lot of money or not that much? It all depends on where you live. In a new study, Smart Asset reports $100,000 goes the farthest in Memphis, Tennessee, where taxes and the cost of living are low. But the study says it doesn't go that far in New York City. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to The Good Work with Jeff Napolitano, part of Talk the Talk here on WHMP. And this is Buzz Eisenberg. Hello, Jeff Napolitano. Hello, Buzz. How are you? I am, well, I'm kind of uh, a combination of excited, uh, <laughs> relieved, uh, um, anticipatory. Mm-hmm. Um, you were engaged for some time in the Merrick Garland Watch, mm-hmm. uh, sort of where's Waldo of political uh, observation why hasn't Trump been charged for his many misdeeds mm-hmm. was the question you asked all the time. Right. This morning, we know that there's an indictment uh, that has uh, come, we're told, between 22 and 30 counts, and on Tuesday that he's going to be arraigned in uh, Manhattan on state charges. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts today? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that this applies to the Merrick Garland watch because, as I understand it, and granted, you lawyers correct me if I'm wrong, but You're this right. is this is a, a state issue that the the state is actually the city of New York is bringing against Trump, and so I think the the question of where is Merrick Garland still actually very much applies because um, there hasn't been any charges that have been levied against Trump for his misdeeds at the at the federal level, and so um, it's great. I mean, I, I saw somebody at a, at a rally in uh, Chicago for Brandon Johnson yesterday say this is the best thing that has happened this century, which I'm not sure if that's, that's true, but I understand the enthusiasm uh, of, you know, the, the rule of law being applied to the, the right wing of our country for maybe, you know, once essentially. Um, but, um, but we'll see. Um, my understanding is... Um, uh, that this is not necessarily even if he's found guilty something that he would even go to jail for and so all of the memes that i saw on twitter and imager this morning with you know uh trump and his secret service guard all in uh the the, the bright fluorescent orange uh jumpsuits is is quite merited yet um yeah but jeff napolitano i'd like to ask you to reflect for a moment on whether it is a great thing because whatever the counts are, they are focused on and around paying off uh, a porn star to keep quiet about uh, the sexual relationship she had with Trump and paying off people and hiding the facts and making false reports and so on and so forth. All the things that come from this uh, relationship with Stormy Daniels. And it seems to me, I'm still bothered by this, that of all of the horrifying things that Trump has done to undermine and jeopardize democracy, that in some ways this is the least of it. And it reminds me a little bit 
about putting Al Capone in jail for, of all things, uh, tax evasion, sure. when what he was guilty of was murdering people, a lot of people. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about that. And Bill, I just want to complicate your question a little bit before Jeff reaches it, because I'm not sure you're right. I'm not sure that all this amount of time was spent just dealing with the payoffs to Stormy Daniels. I'm not sure that all the financial misdeeds that have resulted in his chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, going to prison at Rikers Island as we speak, I'm not sure that it doesn't involve that. We have 30 counts, and we're maybe, 22 to 30 counts, we think, and I'm not at all sure what's in them, but in any way... Uh, yeah. ask your question. I mean, I, obviously, I think that both of you are are, are onto something here, and, and I also think that um, my initial response to a friend texting me yesterday to say, "Hey, Trump has been indicted," <laughs> my response was, "Okay, great. Let's um, let's see what happens at his appeal hearing in 2041." Um, I mean, I, I think that this is again, it's great when anybody is held to the rule of law that has broken it so egregiously even if it is for tax evasion or, you know, paying off a porn star. Uh, but yeah, it is a little bit disturbing that of all of the things that Trump has done, the majority of the people in this country probably care the least about this particular issue. Yeah, the other um, thing, when I received a call last night, I, uh, what I said was, even if it was the end of Trump, yeah. I'm not sure if it's the end of Trumpism. Right. And Trumpism sure. is the plague yep. that we're talking about. Yep, and that'll live on with, you know, in in Ron DeSantis and, all, you know, Joe, uh, not Joe, um, uh, Hawley and uh, Rep- uh, Senator Hawley and uh, a bunch of other uh, right-wingers. So Trump has started something, and it, it, he may not be the only person that can lead it, but we'll, we'll see. I think um, politically... Uh, who knows how this is going to go? Uh, well, yeah. you have a couple of guests. I have a couple of guests. So let's get to the let's get to the real important stuff um, and the <laughs> the 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 folks that are on the ground. So joining us here in the studio are two longtime activists. Um, we have uh, Fergus Marshall uh, and Priscilla Lynch. So welcome, Fergus and Priscilla. Um, and I'm I'm sorry about the uh, once again. I'm sorry about Trump, you know, taking up some time uh, <laughs> um, of some precious time of all of our lives. Um, so you two are longtime activists. Um, Fergus, you're a Vietnam vet, and you have been doing lots of uh, work around social justice in terms of uh, war issues and uh, environmental stuff. And Priscilla, I think you were you were in a, uh, affinity oh, in an affinity group with. Um, Francis Crow for uh, uh, the, the late and great Francis Crow for quite some time uh, uh, in part um, well at least for me my introduction to your activism was the stuff that happened in um, the uh, uh, nuclear power plant in Vermont and shutting that down and working on shutting that down but you've been both involved in tons of things over the years I think the the interesting thing to me is the type of work that you're doing now and focusing on now in the spring and summer that's coming that's tying environmentalism to banks and fossil fuels and maybe even anti-war issues and so can you help us draw the line between this work and, and why you're doing it well i can just say that um yeah this has been going on for a long time, this work, uh, going, and for me, especially going back to working with Francis on Shut It Down in the nuclear power plant 
into uh, Western Mass, founding Western Mass Code Pink, into opposition to the Connecticut Expansion Pipeline, into the Wendell State Forest and opposition to the cutting in the State Forest, uh, and presently now uh, with the Connecticut River Defenders fighting First Light and their destruction of our river. Um, and now, you know, looking at also the role our banks are, or banks are playing in um, what's happening in this world today, not only environmentally, but, you know, in terms of what's happening internationally. Yep. And Fergus? And I have to echo <coughs> what Priscilla has just said, that um, I've been, I the first time I was arrested was with Francis Crow at the federal building in downtown Springfield against the funding of the Contras, um, um, uh, going against the Boland Amendment at the time. <clears throat> That's really taking us way back, but yeah, right. And uh, I, I don't find that, I find that right now there's a certain urgency that we have not ever had in our country, uh, where we have the threats of of climate change and the sixth mass extinction and the threats of nuclear war and the threats to our democracy that we have, we've never had this ever in the history of our country and our world. And uh, right now we are putting together a, a nonviolent direct action training uh, that's gonna be held on Sunday. Um, and this is an invitation. When, when and where on Sunday? Uh, it's going to be at Laurel Park um, in Northampton at noon. And uh, this is an opportunity for folks in the valley here to, or, or outside of the valley, for that matter, to get involved in nonviolent direct action, uh, which uh, will be opportunities this spring and this summer to plug into. So I want to start the conversation before we, we take a, a break just about the what you just said in terms of the us facing something that's sort of unprecedented because the United States, you know, we've, we've faced some pretty dire threats before, but, but you talked about how this is a place that, this is a threat that we've never been at before, that we've never had, dealt with before. So what is this threat um, and, and what is the action that you feel can can take it on. Well, Priscilla. Uh, first, I would say I, I'm not so sure it's a threat we haven't faced before or we haven't known about before, because I think we knew in the '70s what the risks were to our environment and what was going to be coming. And like Americans in America, we just pretend like this stuff doesn't exist and we keep going on and we keep going on until it bubbles up again. And that's where we are now. And I'd just like to say, I don't think that it was uh, wrong or off topic to have discussed what's happening with Trump right now. Because all of this is really part of the same thing. Mm -hmm. It is about how we function. It is about how we look at the world. It is about how uh, we want to be or... Uh, you know, uh, live our lives. It's all connected. Right. Okay. We are talking with um, Priscilla Lynch and Fergus Marshall, some activists here in the Valley. And, and we're going to hear more about this event at Laurel Park in Northampton at noon on Sunday. We're going to be back right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. From the seemingly impossible to the virtually unbelievable. The Peking Acrobats are coming to UMass Thursday, April 6th. The Peking Acrobats, pushing the limits of human ability, defying gravity, one spectacle after another. Mixing time-honored Chinese folk music with high-end special effects and magnificent acrobatic feats. The Peking Acrobats at UMass, an exuberant evening with the festive pageantry of a Chinese carnival. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Peking Acrobats, in the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall at the UMass Fine Arts Center, Thursday, April 6th at 7.30 p.m. From the seemingly impossible to the virtually unbelievable, the Peking Acrobats. Right now, in a kitchen in Deerfield, they're making chocolate bunnies, dark chocolate bunnies, milk chocolate bunnies, white chocolate bunnies, little bunnies, and big bunnies. Go to Richardson's Candy Kitchen in Deerfield. Get chocolate bunnies, get jelly beans, get malted eggs, and cream-filled eggs. The Candy Kitchen in Deerfield, Richardson's Candy Kitchen. They're open today, making chocolate bunnies right now. So hop along to the Candy Kitchen, Richardson's Candy Kitchen in Deerfield. For the second year, Junior Achievement's 18 Under 18 is an exciting program that recognizes outstanding young people throughout Western Massachusetts, showcasing the area's up-and-comers who exemplify innovative spirit, leadership, and community involvement. We encourage you to nominate a student from your school or community today. The 18 Under 18 concludes with an exciting event at Tower Square Springfield on Thursday, May 18th, where all recipients will be celebrated. 18 Under 18 is presented by Teddy Bear Pools and Spas. To nominate a student, visit jawm.org. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, the Sheriff of Hampshire County. If you're looking for a career helping people, the Hampshire Sheriff's Office is hiring in many of our departments. We take great pride in our commitment to returning the men in our care to their communities in better health than when they arrived. Your work will matter, not just to the clients we serve, but also to the people of Hampshire County who rely on us to protect public health and safety. If you're interested in making a difference, please visit the Mass Careers website for more information. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. Uh, you're listening to the Good Works segment of Talk the Talk with Jeff Napolitano, and I have... Priscilla Lynch and Fergus Marshall here in the studio talking about uh, their past activist history, but also looking forward to uh, this, in particular, the spring and summer and the work that they're going to be doing. And um, Fergus Marshall, Priscilla Lynch, uh, I just want to make the connection to your work in the coalitions and the groups that you're working with to uh, a recent uh, 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 protest that rally that took place here in Northampton that was targeting Chase Bank. Uh, and I know that you have uh, your activism is one of the targets are 
banks like Chase Bank. And so I'm wondering if you can draw us that connection to, you know, what's so bad about Chase and, and what's so bad about banks? You know, 10 years ago, I know that we were protesting them over evictions and foreclosures, but uh, what's, uh, what's so wrong with them now? Well, <clears throat> Chase, Wells Fargo, Citibank, Bank of America, and TD Bank are some of the largest funders of fossil fuel projects nearly one trillion in the last six years combined. Chase Bank alone has invested nearly 400 billion. Um, it, this is unconscionable for these banks to be funding these projects while we are in this climate crisis. Uh, clearly, we have got to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and clearly, it is not happening. So what is it for us to do? We must, we must take action and tell these banks that we are not going to take it. Um, there are a few organizations, Stop the Money Pipeline is one, Honor Earth, which is an indigenous-led organization, uh, Third Act, Elders Climate Action. These are all good organizations out there that are setting the way. Right. Fergus Marshall, that was, um, you mentioned some organizations, uh, a third act I, I had heard from Bill McKibben promoting uh, the work that they were doing. Um, Priscilla Lynch, um, what is, what, what's drawing you to this work? And in, in, uh, that is the question, is what is to be done? That's sort of the perennial question. What is to be done? And so um, what, what is it that you think is to be done? Well, I, I think we need to hold everyone's feet to the fire on these issues. And, um, you know, this bank, uh, Chase Bank, is one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're opening up here in Northampton. Mm -hmm. And we need to be there to tell them, we don't want you in our town. We don't want you funding these fossil fuel operations that are hurting us when we all know this is not what to be doing. Um, and so, you know, that's part of uh, why I'm involved with this piece right now, too. And mm -hmm. I think we have to do that anywhere and everywhere we can. Right. And so uh, the, the type of action that you're talking about is nonviolent direct action. There will be a training uh, this Sunday. Uh, if anybody is interested, they can email spudznick at yahoo.com, S-P-U-D-Z-N-K at yahoo.com uh, to get on the list. This is just the beginning, hopefully, of a larger movement, particularly here in the Valley, that's already pretty large. Um, and, uh, you know, I wonder if you can speak to the coalitions and the groups that are coming together around this and, um, you know, what, what else might be planned in the future or what you see. Um, you mentioned Third Act. You mentioned uh, a couple of other organizations, other affiliations with your activist groups and affinity groups here with those organizations? Priscilla Lynch or Fergus Marshall? Some of us are involved with some of the organizations that have already been mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also, you know, demilitarized Western Mass that some of us are working with and making those connections and trying to support one another and be there for one another. So that people understand this, again, is all about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that we need to do our best to um, take control of these situations um, and contribute to change. Significant. 
May, may I uh, ask a question? Um, I'm, so I think it was last weekend or maybe it was the weekend before. There was that big protest in front of Chase Bank. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you get started? What, who came up with the ideas for that? And what organizations were involved in that? Well, that was originally started, oh, gee, it was probably last year, um, last fall, uh, that uh, Bill McKibben with his newly formed group called uh, called Third Act, which is... Um, an organization that is using folks over the age of 60 years old to to do this this new movement um, started a campaign where everyone was going to in the spring get together at the banks and cut up their credit cards in a solidarity show that we are not going to take this anymore um, so this is the main group that started this um, this action at the banks, not just Chase, but all of these all of these large banks that are funding fossil fuel infrastructure and projects. Um, so it came to fruition on the 21st of March um, at the banks in Northampton. Um, there were close to 300 people that were involved in this. It was a it was a great was a great rally. And, and what was the, the end goal? Was it, it was it to get them out of town? Was it to have them reinvest the money into renewables? Is it we don't want you in town at all? Or is that just sort of a mix, depending on the activist? Well, I think it was a mix. Um, but the main goal was to show the banks that because, um, because individuals, uh, individual deposits make up most of the revenue that banks bring in, that showing them that we are going to cut up our credit cards can really make a huge impact on their revenue. Um, so this was a, a real show of, of strength. Did you get a response from Trace? Not that I know of. I did see a statement from a PR person from Chase saying, oh, we invest in green energy, too. So they did notice that it happened. That's called greenwashing. Priscilla Lynch, you want to say a little bit more about that and, and maybe about the, the, the other tactics that you might see uh, in addressing the, in, this work? Of, in the one minute that we in have. In the one left. minute, okay. yes. <laughs> yeah, you'll hear things from them, greenwashing. What did I hear this morning? John Kerry, when he was confronted about his taking a private jet to all of these climate uh, meetings because he's the new climate czar. You know, his uh, response was, oh, it's okay because we use carbon offsets, you know, which anyone who's paid attention knows is a scam, isn't going to get us anywhere, but is part of the federal government and the state government's plan to reach, uh, you know, net zero by 2050. So well, you have to listen and pay attention. And how can you be doing green things if you are funding fossil fuels? So one more time, what is the email if people want to be involved in the training in order to participate in some events that are forthcoming? Sure, it's spudznick at yahoo.com, S-P-U-D-Z-N-K at yahoo.com. And uh, hopefully this is the beginning of a, a larger movement into the spring and the summer. Well, thank you, Priscilla Lynch, for joining us. Thank you, Fergus Marshall, so much for bringing this to our attention. Jeff Balatano, as always. Thank you all for joining us on Talk to Talk. We hope you walk the walk. All things and what they used to be not.
The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth, supported by adult 4-H club leaders, are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon, engineer, and CEO. These are just some of the roles that a recent survey shows that our 4-Hers not only dream about, but are preparing for. Join the 4-H team. Call me, Tom, at 413-545. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. W